And all God's people say yes and amen. Aileen Houston, thank you. Hey, good morning. Uh, this is beginning for us uh, our fall series. We're going to walk through the book of 1 Timothy together for the next several weeks and to, before between now and uh, Advent time. And I hope you've had a chance to, um, to grab one of the 1 Timothy devotional guides. Um, the, the reason why is uh, because you're going to find all sorts of help in here. These guides are kind of mapped out where, first of all, the first thing you'll see is each passage this week on its own page where you can mark it up and do a little personal Bible study. You'll see a blank page next to it that you can write sermon notes. Uh, you'll see another page that'll help you walk through your community group questions. You'll see another page in there that'll have five suggested quiet times for the week. By the way, for five bucks, you get all of that? Are you kidding me? I can't believe you're not rushing to the booth. But if that hasn't pushed you far enough... How about a free bookmark thrown in, huh? <laughs> and the bookmark on there actually has some meaningful questions on there because it will help guide you through how to do some personal Bible study itself. And so use those questions to help you walk through um, our times in 1 Timothy together. That is the full creativity of my introduction for the sermon. <laughs> that took all morning to come up with. You ready to jump in then? Why don't we do this? Why don't we start in chapter one, verse one? Go there with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. So this is a personal letter from the Apostle Paul to his young protege, Timothy. Paul met Timothy years ago on his second missionary journey. Most likely, Paul led Timothy to faith in Christ personally, which is why he calls him my true son in the faith. By the way, that's not the only place he calls him that. Three other times in the New Testament, he uses that term of endearment. Timothy, when he met him on that second missionary journey, was probably a late teenager, early 20-something. Think college kid. I know, it's frightening, isn't it? To be the young protege who will take on the work that Paul does, he joins him at that young, tender age. But these two were close. This was no veteran rookie just paired up to do a job. No, they had a friendship and a bond that was unique. In fact, in Philippians chapter two, uh, Paul says this of Timothy, I have nobody else like Timothy. He's a kindred spirit to me. You know what the word kindred spirit really means in the original language? soulmate. Wow. In our world, the word, word soulmate is only used of romantic relationships. In the Bible, they would laugh at that. A soulmate was only used to describe two people whose hearts were knit together on a common mission. So it comes up in Jonathan and David and Paul and Timothy. Hey, married couples or those who are dating seriously, does that not raise your vision of what it means for us to be soulmates? knit together in a common life mission. And so Paul and Timothy were. The historical background in this actual letter that Paul is writing, Timothy, could go something like this. The year is AD 62. 
Paul is released from arrest, house arrest in Rome and uh, at the end of the book of Acts and he travels with Timothy and Titus to the island of Crete. When he gets to Crete, he sees the condition of the churches there and he chooses to leave Titus to pastor those churches. He and Timothy get back on a boat and they head over to Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and there they land in the city of Ephesus. And when Paul sees the condition of the churches there, he chooses to leave Timothy behind to pastor the churches. Paul continues on to Macedonia, as we just read there. And when he gets to Macedonia, he writes two letters, 1 Timothy and Titus. Their only design is to coach up and instruct and encourage two young pastors to do the job he left them to do. After Macedonia, Paul then goes to Troas, where he is arrested and taken to Rome. In Rome, he writes one more letter. It's his goodbye letter of 2 Timothy, most intimate and personal letter, because church tradition tells us that what happened next is he was led out to the Ostian Way and beheaded. This letter we're reading here is one of Paul's last correspondence, deeply personal to someone he deeply loved. Timothy stayed at Ephesus, again, modern-day Turkey, right around Izmir, if you know your, your map there on the Mediterranean Sea. And according to church tradition, he stayed in Ephesus long enough that he became the bishop over several pastors in the area until he too was martyred under the emperor Domitian. These letters are from a spiritual father, and their job is to serve as a guide to both instruct and encourage on what was most important. This city that Paul wanted Timothy to remain in, it was super strategic. What made Ephesus unique was probably first, if you and I had arrived in that seaport, we would have noticed its size. 300,000 people. Folks, that's a megalopolis in those days. And the reason it was so large in size is because it had work. It was the business and economic hub for the entire province. Uh, Ephesus was a harbor route, but also a land trade route. And so all business flowed into and moved all over the continent. And in on that business route that continued to move, you saw culture begin to develop around a booming job economy. And so Ephesus was known for things like a 25,000 seat amphitheater. I've stood in that amphitheater and all I can tell you is it makes Bud Walton look like it would want to be this. It's about twice the size of Bud Walton Arena because 25,000 just on half of it and this enormous bowl. The arts and culture were alive and vibrant in this economic hub. But what really made it stand out and unique was its religious life because Ephesus was the home for the Temple of Artemis. She was the Greek goddess of fertility. She was known as Diana in Roman mythology. And the temple was so magnificent, it's four times larger than the Greek Parthenon that people still visit. It was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And folks, this wasn't just a little religion that was off in the corner. It began to permeate everything in the economy and in the family culture and in the religious lifestyle of the community. Ephesus was a center of religion and culture and finance in this region of the world. Think New York City for the United States. Hey, think Bentonville, if you want, for Northwest Arkansas. And do you know what happens when a 
a culture begins to grow in its economy and then grows in the arts and the culture and then grows even in its religious expression, you know, because we've seen it, it starts becoming more and more diverse in its thought and its worldview and its approach to life. It becomes a melting pot of diversity. And in all of that diversity that is so good, not every voice is good. Not every voice is helpful. Not every voice should be trusted. And so the question that the believers in Ephesus had, hey, the question that believers in Bentonville have, whose voice can you trust? Who should you listen to? Ours is a noisy world, is it not? In a diverse culture, it's always been noisy. But in an age of social media, it's deafening, isn't it? Social media allows our voices to be louder and more frequent, and let's just say it, more polarized than we've ever known before. And whether that's opinions about politics or vaccine mandates or diversity and racism or social justice issues or even common core math. Hey, let's be honest. We'll get loud and proud about whether we think Popeye's or Chick-fil-A has the best sandwich. We are a people who want to express ourselves and, and make our opinions known. And I think our world has far more heat than it has light. Listen, all I know is that I'm like you. Maybe not, though. Maybe I'm way more than you. I'm an opinionated person. I have an adult child sitting in the room, and you can't lie in front of your adult kids in a room. They know that's true. And most of us pride ourselves as having done our own research and come to our own conclusions. Could we shoot straight? We all listen to somebody. We all choose to trust somebody or something to form our convictions. So the only question I have right now is who should I trust? And 1 Timothy is a gift to us. Paul says his goodbye to the Ephesians letters, or the Ephesian elders, excuse me. And when he was saying his goodbye to those elders, he really wasn't worried about the noisy voices in the culture of Ephesus. That didn't bother him. He expected Ephesus to be as lost as Ephesus was lost. Lost people should sound lost. That's called integrity. What he was concerned about was misguided voices from inside the church. And so he summons the Ephesians elders together in Acts chapter 20. And this is his goodbye speech to them in verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. So, here's the command, be on your guard. In other words, you better know who to trust. The Ephesian elders may have heeded the warning, may have gotten distracted. All we know is a few years later, Paul writes uh, 1 Timothy, and in the opening lines, we read in verse 3, stay in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Those strange voices had risen up inside. 
Yeah, the command he's giving us here is not to fight the culture around us, but to fight for the gospel among us and to know who to trust. And when you read the next two paragraphs, which we'll do together, you're gonna see, and I'll tip my hand right up front, four things that help guide us on a trusted voice. And the first thing we see comes in the very next verse, after verse three. Look at verse three and four together. Right after he says, Command those who are teaching false doctrines to stop it. He says, these are people who devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And so the first thing we see Paul coach Timothy on is to examine the focus of the message that you're hearing. Who or what does that message point to? Uh, Does it focus on primary or what you and I would call core issues? Or does it get sidetracked by secondary side issues? Paul, already in just greeting Timothy, tells him what the core issues are. Did you notice when we read that greeting, uh, he said, Timothy, I greet you, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He's giving us the bullseye. What's the core? What's the thing Paul says should be most central to the people of God? The next line he says, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Paul is taking them uniquely to a Jesus and gospel-centered perspective. Now listen, it's not because Paul is a man who's so religious he has his head in the sand. Stop it. Paul was a world-class thinker and apologist. If we pride ourselves on being culture observers, he was the king of that. No, Paul knew that there were political issues going on around the believers, theological issues going on around the believers, cultural issues going around. What he says is, I don't want you to get distracted by that. I want you to stay on the core issue. Anything else is a distraction because what he knows we need most is the good news of God which is the gospel, in a broken and noisy world. And I think that's why Paul also focuses on the content of the message. So you don't just look at where that voice is taking you to, you actually look at the substance of that message. And you ask the question, is the substance of our message focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ? And by the way, anytime we talk about who Jesus is, the person of him, and what Jesus does, the work of him, You put those two together and the shortest one word definition of that is called gospel. It is the good news of who God is and what he does on behalf of people. And Paul says, don't ever get sidetracked off the subject that is most precious to us. Are the voices that we listen to taking us to who Jesus is and what he does or do they take us to opinions and speculations Inside controversies. Again, our lives are filled with other issues, are they not? We have political issues that we care about. We have theological issues we care about. We have cultural issues, social issues that we care about. Paul does not tell us, pretend they don't exist. He says, just know that they don't belong in the center of the bullseye. And you chase the bullseye, which is who Jesus is and what Jesus does. The trustworthy voice in our lives 
is the one who is most passionate about talking about who Jesus is and what he's done on behalf of us. Because that's someone who's tipping the hand that tells you they care about the gospel more than anything else. Now listen, I know that's simple to say. But that is oh so hard to live, isn't it? Because we are in a generation, in a world culture that tells us that the only real absolute truth we should dial into is an absolute truth called your lived experience. Which is why we hear phrases like own your truth, live your truth. The question I have is what happens when your truth collides with God's revealed truth? At some point, you're going to have to choose who you'll trust. Am I going with me or am I going with him? I vote you go with him because on my best days, I know how fickle I am. And I hang out with people who are just like me. No, he is the one who can be trusted in season and out of season. Who will it be and who will you trust? In Timothy's church, that was more confusing because in his day, the false teachers were taking a portion of God's revealed truth in the Old Testament and they were bending it and twisting it and applying it to the New Testament church. And so in particular, they looked at God's revealed truth in the Old Testament law that was given to the nation of Israel and they were bending and twisting it and applying it to a New Testament church that included both Jews and Gentiles side by side. And so for a couple of verses, he's going to take a sidebar, kind of a step out over here and say, here's how you know someone's applying good truth in a good way versus bending it for their own agenda. Look at verse 8 through 11. He says, we know that the law, meaning that Old Testament law, is good if one uses it properly. Swords are good when they're used for what swords are for. We also know the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. So what's Paul reminding us? He says, let's be clear. The problem isn't God's standards. We know the law is of God, and therefore, if it's of God, it is good. But we have to ask, what's it good for? And it's good for the purposes that God gave it. And without taking too much time on kind of this sidebar about the Old Testament law, think of it this way. The law, he says, is good for giving us clear vision. First of all, clear vision of who God is and clear vision of who we are. Think about it this way. The Old Testament law is a window in which we look into and we see the heart of God and his perfection and his holiness and what a right standard looks like. But the law is also a mirror that shows ourselves and it shows our sin. And so Paul lists this long list of sins up here by the way, if you wanted to write them down in a diagram, you would find they're incredibly parallel to the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And even in that, he shows that this list of sins, even if you don't think you're on that list, maybe you didn't create, uh, commit acts of violence or sexual immorality that come to the degree that he talks about there, you know, the killing your own fathers and mothers, 
That's probably because you're not still a teenager and you don't remember what you were like. But, you see, even if you don't find yourself on that list of heinous sins, notice how he closes the text. Anything else in your life that doesn't conform with the perfect standard of God? Oops, I'm on the list, how about you? And you know what that list is designed to do? That law is designed to do? Show me that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. And Paul says, exactly. Let's go back to talk about the savior and his gospel. Let's get back to the main issue. See, the false teachers were distracting people from Jesus and the gospel by number one, focusing on a side issue that created controversy, or number two, teaching a religious version of self-improvement through law-keeping. By the way, that's happening in both of our worlds right now. I mean, we're hearing side issues and controversies all the time in the church, but then we also have a, a branch of teaching in the evangelical church that constantly pushes us back to some kind of religious self-improvement, some way you can find your own best life now. Uh, Paul says, I want you to look up off yourself and get focused again on Jesus. He says, those false teachers, when they teach that way, it reveals their heart. Look at verse five through seven. He says, the goal of this command is love. Pause, what command? Well, the verse right before it was, put a roadblock to the false teachers from teaching their false doctrine in the church. He says, the goal of that command is love. In other words, I'm not doing that because I'm narrow-minded, too conservative, and uh, hard-hearted. I'm doing that because I love this church. So the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some, these false teachers, have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk, empty talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they... They don't know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And here, Paul says, the heart of the matter for these false teachers is the heart. That we can also look at the motive behind their message. The motive is going to come down to one of two things. He says it's going to come down to love, which is an other-centered movement, or self-centeredness, which begins to look to, to puff up yourself and your own knowledge and your own expertise. My, def, my personal definition of love, and if you have one better than this, run with yours versus mine. My personal definition of love is just stealing what it looks like for God to love the world. And that love is seeking what's best for someone else, regardless of personal cost. So Paul says, my only motive for teaching you what I teach you is I want God's best for you. False teachers, not so much. Their motive is self-centered. They want to look good. They want to show themselves off to be an expert or a know-it-all. And Paul says, don't trust their voice, even if there's a kernel of truth in what they say. The motive matters. I don't know that I'll actually get the timeline on this right, but I can remember that it was at least 25, possibly 30 years ago, and Lisa and I were having an argument in our kitchen. And right now she's looking at me with big eyes like, what are you about to say? So I'll look over here. Because <laughs> I have as much courage as you do. 
I remember even the first home that we lived in, the little home that we had remodeled together. And I don't remember what the argument was about. At least if you do, you probably remember you started it. And uh, <laughs> um, I just remember I was insistent that I was right and very aggravated that she didn't agree. And so I'm mounting more evidence of why my perspective is right and hers is, it's not that it's wrong, it's just not as right as mine. And so uh, I'm giving her more data and she's not agreeing with me. Now, I don't know what I expected my wife to do. I don't know if I expected her to kind of go like this, like, oh my gosh, Mark, with the impeccable evidence you have amassed in this argument, I see that you are clearly all in the right. She didn't go one iota that way. Instead, she actually stepped towards me and she reached out her fingers and it caused me to stop. And she said, Mark, you're not right, but you are better with words, which means you'll probably win this argument. So right now, would you just tell me whether you'd like to be right or win at our marriage? What do you think she was calling out? My data? My heart, my motive. She said, I can't trust what you say because I don't think your motive is love here. Yeah, Paul's saying here, you know a trusted voice when you can see their focus on the core issue, when you can see the, the content, the substance is Jesus and what he has done, and when you can see the, the motive, that it comes with an other-centered love. And when those line up, a result happens, the fourth thing, and that's what he points us to next. Look at verse four. We've read it before, and look at 10 and 11, connected to it. Such things promote the false teaching, promotes controversial speculations rather than, here's the core, advancing God's work, which is by faith. And he goes on to say, whatever else is contrary to, and here's what he calls it, the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God. So you see two different results for these two different voices. The wrong voices stir up controversy and they result in division. By the way, what makes me sad in our day is that we actually cause loud controversial voices to be known as the prophets of our age. It's almost as though we believe that the Proverbs, there was an old proverb somewhere that Solomon wrote that says, he who kicks up the, must, the most dust must be right. No, no, the apostle James wrote to us in James saying, you know what, how it, you know that's the wisdom of God? He says, the wisdom that comes from above is always peaceable. He or she who kicks up the most dust might just make you cough a lot on that dust. We need to lock in on those who bring a unity and a harmony around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he continues on saying, you're gonna trust the voices who advance God's agenda in this world. Right, who advance God's work by faith. He calls it, verse 10, sound doctrine. That sounds like a dry, dusty term, doesn't it? Oh, how boring, sound doctrine. Uh-uh, think about it this way. The word sound is where we get our English word hygiene. Healthy teaching. How do you know when something is this healthy teaching? Well, look at before that. Verse four, it says it advances God's work on this earth. Verse 11 says it always points and lines up to the gospel of our glorious, blessed God. Oh, that makes so much sense. We're only to listen to people whose message builds our faith in Jesus and what he's done for us. 
And if the messenger just stirs up our anxiety over a public policy or a theological issue, or worse, begins to focus on our own religious performance, Paul's saying, do everyone a favor and reject that message and messenger. Trust only those who build their hope in Jesus, that was verse one, who turn around and and build your faith in the gospel, that was verse two, and who turn around and build your love for one another, that was verse five. That's how Paul coaches us on how we find the right voice in our culture and in our church. If I were to put this together in a chart, what do you know? I have. This is what I see mapped out in this passage. There are wrong voices and right voices that will rise up even from among us. How do we know who to dial into? Well, we focus on the person of Jesus and what he's done. We actually believe that our healthy teaching is faith in the glorious gospel. We keep stay radically other-focused in love, and we seek to advance God's work and glorify him on this earth. And so men and women, look around the room because this is going to be the core. This and the 930 group will be the core of Fellowship Bentonville. So my question is simply this. Who should our city trust? Should they trust us because we have a big new building down the street? Mm, I don't think so, because there's another big new building just a quarter of a, or a tenth of a mile south of us going up <laughs> that won't be teaching the same thing. Should they trust us because our facility is impressive? Ooh, I hope not. That other facility is quite impressive looking too. Maybe they should only trust us if we're a trustworthy voice with a message that points them to the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done. Even when we disagree on the side issues. Because I want to be right about the right things. And I'm really okay being wrong on the things that don't matter as much. Will we stay true to the core of Jesus Christ and what he's done? Will our student ministry, our community groups, our worship services, will our outreach, our kids' ministry, our men's and women's groups, will even our website point more to the glory of Jesus Christ and what he has done in bridging us and reconciling us to a God who brings life to us and through us? Will that show as our greatest passion? If so, our voice will be trusted. I don't know if it'll be accepted. Maybe not, but it will be trustworthy in the eyes of God. And that's how Paul closes this section of this glorious gospel for what I have been entrusted. May we be that faithful as well. The early church struggled so much to clarify this. It was a noisy mess in their day. And so they finally said, we need a creed. We need a confession. Something that a believers know that they can cling to as being the rock of truth. And so about 250 miles to the east and north of Ephesus was the town of Nicaea. In which a group of pastors and theologians gathered around about 250 years after Timothy pastored. And they developed a creed that has been 
spoken out loud by believers when they gather in almost every language on the planet. And I wonder this morning if we could join them in that Nicene Creed. Would you stand? This is the confession of our faith that's been there for, for almost 2,000 years. Could we repeat it together? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us men and our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.